episode 120, we talked to Dr. Hannah Pavek about her article published in Film Philosophy entitled Taciturn Masculinities, Radical Quiet and Sounding Linguistic Difference in Valeska Griesbach's Western. We also talk about the idea of the Western genre being transposed to other contexts and used for allegorical purposes. And we also discuss different writing styles and processes, moving, for example, from academic writing to journalistic writing and blogging. If you enjoy The Cinematologists, please consider supporting us on our Patreon. You get access to all of our bonus material, including our extensive monthly newsletter. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me, I'm delighted to say, as ever, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hey, hey, Neil. How are you doing? Interesting weekend for you. Big, big news, big things happening. Yep. Uh, Wilderness is out in the world, my feature film uh, as a writer and producer. So it's been, yes, a very heady few days and a really lovely few days seeing reviews come in and seeing people supporting it and spreading the word about it has been really lovely uh busy but yeah really lovely so i'm riding a wave at the moment yeah it's funny because it was it's made a while ago now and i i heard you sort of talking about it on one of the the podcasts that you were on i've talked about it on was it maybe the script ramble podcast yeah that was it i yeah i was i was listening to that and you know that that sort of sense of the film being made in 2016 wasn't it and then now it's come out now and the gap both in in how you remember the process and what you wanted to do with the film at that time and how you might change things just because you've looked at it back and you think, oh, yeah, I wouldn't do that. But then how maybe how it sits in the culture yeah. right now. I think those are two interesting points that we're going to talk about when we do a podcast on it. Yes, I'm excited to do that. But yeah, it has been interesting, I think, because I think that when I've made short films before, the reflection on it is always it's was kind of after the fact of the film doing its thing you know I look back on the shorts when I'm starting to make another project and thinking about what I want to do differently or what I would do differently and and how I might have changed in that interim but what's weird is that I'm looking back on all of those things and as the film is coming out after such a long time and what has been a really interesting few years in terms of independent film culture and some of the themes that that are in the film so it's been yeah I've really enjoyed that you know I think well, I've just chosen to really, other than rather than thinking, oh god, it's taken so long to come out, <laughs> which would have been a bit depressing. But yeah, I think it's it's and it's been interesting to see, yeah, because obviously when we made that film in a in 2016 and then it towards 2017, 2018, it was seen in a certain way. But most of the people who are seeing it now are seeing it for the first time. So what do they make of it in this current moment? And that's really interesting. Yeah, well, we're not going to go too much into that because we're going to do a whole podcast on it next next up. That's just trailing the the next episode is. Um, and uh, Justin's going to be on, is that right? Yeah, Justin's going to join us for that as well. So he's the director and yeah. Great. So that should be really good fun. I'll see if I can get you two spilling the beans on each other. And uh, I, I haven't watched it again yet, but I will. Obviously, I'll watch it again. But I also want to try and take the conversation to places that hasn't happened elsewhere that I've seen, but also that you you hopefully would give me the latitude to take it. Yeah, yeah, no, fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. I think that, you know, one of the exciting things about having a podcast on it, you know, ever since you sort of suggested it when the film was at festivals, is is having a cinematologist conversation about it rather than, you know, like all the 
all the stuff I've done has been very different and I'm particularly interested in having our kind of conversation about it, I think. So, yeah, I'm excited about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a bit cool. nervous, but excited. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. I'll be kind. Um, yeah, so today's episode is one that we've kind of had in the in the pipeline for a little bit of time. And this is a conversation on the film Western, which is the um, Valeska Griesbach realist drama set in Bulgaria, but a kind of... I suppose it's it's uh, thematically it's a take on European politics and European identities and particularly masculinity. I think, although I, you know, I'm, I don't want to sort of pigeonhole in that in that sense. But we are talking to uh, Dr. Hannah Pavek, who has written a fantastic article, which is more or less focused on the kind of sound elements of the aesthetics of the film, but then places them within those sort of wider thematics of of European politics, geopolitics where European cinema sits in its representation of politics and then masculinity at the same time. So it's a really interesting way in which aesthetics and 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 politics kind of sit together in this article. And she's a, a fairly recent graduate from the PhD programme uh, at KCL. And she worked with me for a little while at, at Brighton before going back to Canada. Now she's, she's working in Canada. And her article is up for um, an award, actually, which is... It's nice when you get um, a piece of academic work that has that kind of recognition, and it, it is a great piece. And we'll, we'll come to the interview in a second, and definitely we're going to talk a lot about Westerns that are not set in the context of the Old West um, or are revisionist or do something different with that kind of genre. I think that's something that we'll talk quite a bit about, Neil. But one of the things that I sort of, in reading this article and doing quite a bit of writing myself in various different channels at the moment and and reading your blog about about writing your book which is not strictly an academic book i don't it, i'm right in saying that it's kind of crossover isn't it in a way hopefully <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i'm just i I'm just wondering it, it's been interesting to me sort of looking at and trying to adopt different styles of writing and also different practices of writing to be able to get things moving and and you know some of the techniques that are in, involved with that and 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 also sort of listening to the spoken web podcast which is about poetry i've never been a huge poetry person but i'm getting more into it in the sense of it being performed so i'm really interested in that relationship between speech and and writing so yeah i mean i, I don't know have, have you got any thoughts on your own your own attitudes or your own practices when you're doing, say, an academic piece of work or whether you're doing a journalistic piece of work or whether you're self-reflecting and those those different ways of writing? Yeah, I think um, I kind of start, I start all writing in the same way, or at least I have historically tried to do that in terms of kind of spending time writing quite instinctively in terms of what interests me about a piece or what interests me about a film, like making a lot of handwritten notes about about things, either as I'm watching them or as I'm listening to things, you know, when I'm sort of been writing about podcasts and and then just eking away at what excites me or interests me about a piece. And bef- before then kind of grappling with is this what's the audience and what's the outlet? You know, like trying to keep trying to keep a core of it what I guess is is me and then shaping that sort of after the fact. And that's mostly been how I've written pretty much everything. I had a recent a recent example of an academic piece that was rejected. And I think that one of the big problems with it was that I hadn't reconciled the two sides. You know, I'd never quite got I never got the piece to where it should have been in terms of it being an academic piece. Because I 
was it was still kind of almost halfway through the process. It was neither journalistic nor academic. And I've certainly had that experience as well with with pieces that I've written journalistically where I've not got the piece to where it should be. And I think that's that's certainly part of my part of my process that can often be be difficult. It, it can it can make make it difficult to get a piece finished. I think and thankfully it doesn't happen too often. So yeah, and and writing the book is is a completely different thing i'm having to i'm having to do that differently because it's such a big thing and i can't like i find it easier on a piece of work to do that but this is so much bigger in scope and because i want it to be thoughtful and kind of well researched and have a not an argument per se but certainly an intellectual through line or through lines as well as being something that i think is interesting and enjoyable to read like it's it feels like a a completely different aspect way of doing it that I'm having to reckon with as I go. What about you? I think that the, the differences between our two sort of trajectories in academia, I mean, you've, you, you've written a lot more journalistic stuff than I have for specific outlets. I mean, that, I suppose that does really define in a sense, the process, particularly in terms of aiming for a specific audience but you know my writing de- definitely comes through the phd more than anything else so i'm you know that that sort of sense of academic writing i think i you know i went through a period as i think is a rite of passage for all academics in terms of or for many academics in terms of writing in that very obtuse uh continental you know borrowed from french french post structuralism style and and it's funny how you know I, I probably if we went back to read my phd it would be much much more like that and i i suppose my my development as a writer has been much more trying to 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 move away from that while retaining a sense of this is academically rigorous and creates a sophisticated argument and and also I suppose that there is that that there there is the two school two schools about that and I'm still not sure where I sit on within them I can see sort of both sides of the argument where the criticism of academic writing is it's just bad writing because it try it obfuscates things that are meant to be clear but yet academics you know especially who come from kind of the humanities and cultural studies I think are much more reticent to say this is this and that's that definitely you know there's there's caveats to everything and then there's that sense of getting over caveated in in things but i have to say i think that my my troubles have always been just sort of getting started and moving forward and once i do get into a flow then things come fairly fairly easily i think in terms of sort of disciplining myself to sit down and, and do it and i think that that writing the blog now this is the first time i've really sort of sat down to decide that i was going to write something weekly and and it, it's a specific thing and it's for me i mean yeah it's out on the internet and it's fine but it is is for me in a way and i think what that's helped me do is find a starting point and find a way into things and i wrote quite a, a lengthy piece as you know the other day, which was a, a, almost a sort of response to a lot of the conversation that's been going on about, around male violence in relationship to you know some of the tragic events that have been happening recently, and that was that was quite a difficult piece to write in terms of what I wanted to say at the heart of it. But it was an easy piece to start because I knew how I wanted to start it. I had an anecdote, I had a way in, and and I had a structure in my mind, so everything was in the in my head. But then the the, the difficulty became how am I expressing myself here and, 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 and not again, not falling into that caveating everything I say, but acknowledging that there, that there are ways, what, what I might be saying 
will have counterpoints and I'm happy to hear them or it may even the things that I'm saying may be incorrect to certain readers or problematic to certain readers but it's it's always that that thing I suppose of hoping I mean we've talked about this an, an awful lot is assuming good faith on the part of the, the the reader if the if the reader has bad faith to start with there's nothing really that you can do about that yeah and that that historically is a problem with academia in terms of the review process you know so yeah. much of the review process is combative and you know sort of gladiatorial and i think yeah what's interesting is that there's so much academic writing that is not bound by one kind of narrow definition you know you'd think that you think that stuart hall's kind of approach would be seen as valid because it's amazing you know in, mm. intellectually rigorous accessible yeah. really yeah kind of nimble but still there's a battle because of this yeah defensiveness and, and, and paranoia almost about what and I, I think because I came into academic writing having done film criticism and screenwriting I was both kind of nervous and anxious about being sort of taken seriously but also much more interested in in doing something which I thought was yeah not bound by a very narrow definition and I think what I what I've always found really troubling is that I seem to have been regarded as someone who's not intellectually rigorous because I might write in a in a more informal style and I just find that really kind of insulting because I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of rigor that goes into my work um but I'm also not someone who wants to write in that way but then I just you know I kind of it does make me more resolute in kind of in improving and you know, sort of going back and and reworking things and and sort of overworking things over. But I think a lot of that again comes from a an insecurity of of not feeling I was going to be taken seriously before I joined academia, and then almost kind of having a self fulfilling prophecy. But my response for everything has always been just keep writing, you know. And I write a lot, uh, and I love it, um, and it has its own rewards. Whatever I'm doing, you know. And one of the thrilling things about writing the book is that I've carried this book around with me with these films for five or six years now you know so the actual when I sit down and write is coming quite easily certainly in terms of the draft because I didn't realize I was doing so much of the process of writing while I was not while it didn't have a publisher and while I was waiting you know I was still constantly thinking about what this book was going to be and what these films that I were going to write about so that's been an interesting thing to learn is actually that I've been writing for so long and that's much closer to my screenwriting you know, where I, I sit down and write in bursts, things I've been thinking about for a long time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've I've sort of come to realise is that there is such a, a, a kind of networked hierarchy of where things are placed, which often has very little to do with how good the writing is. And that, that at least sort of releases me from that, that anxiety a little bit. And, you know, it's a lot of writing is like a lot of institutional institutional kind of organization in in that it's it's who you know and you know where things are placed are there for for specific reasons now don't get me wrong there's loads of great writing and it's really easy to sort of turn that back on yourself oh the reason you don't have things placed in in here there and everywhere is because of this 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 and this but there is a there is a politics of that and you can't you know it, it's it, it's definitely there and you can see it actually in some of the writing that you that, that you read by people who have got big names and, and huge followings but i think interesting just turning onto the um onto the piece that we're discussing today in hannah's article which is a very it's not complicated i think it's complex and it's in depth 
and it's, it's definitely a piece of academic writing in that sense. But what I like about it is the way that it that it takes elements of aesthetics, particularly around sound, and then extrapolates them to these political understandings of the way that people communicate. And I think that that, that interests me and, and think interests us anyway because of podcasting and, and that, that sense of conversation and the idea of sort of silence and sound and, and the way that that is then used aesthetically in the, in the piece. To analyse the film, I found kind of really sort of satisfying in terms of its approach to the film. It's a really great piece. Really, yeah, like you say, complex in the best way. And it does that great thing, which is why it's so related to this film is that it 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 does it kind of draws validity to to a lot of different ideas without claiming exclusivity and and claiming that this is the reading of the film or that like you sort of said before that the film can be pigeonholed as a western about masculinity those kind of genre conventions and those kind of themes are right there but it's a it's a much more nuanced and and layered and interesting film than, than than simply that and the, the the same is of the piece you know it, this is this is someone who is aware of that complexity within the film and is is kind of like you say drawing certain elements out of it with such yeah such rigor and such such great thought but it's never it, it never does that thing which some writing does which is like this is the reading of the film must be this that's that's always a pleasure to read because it's 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 kind of doing that thing of showing you how it's highlighting the the craft and the impact of a film and also bringing out so many of the other things in the film that are would be equally worth talking about uh, and equally worth focusing on and it's a it's a piece of writing that reminds you of of what what films can contain and it articulates so much of the experience of watching the film you know i'd seen i saw the film when it came out and i loved it and then reading the piece and rewatching it it kind of it, it allows you back into the film in a completely different way and it helps you start to articulate your feelings about the film in a really fascinating way, which is which is what, one of the reasons I love kind of good academic writing. And what I mean by good, I guess, is what I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So we're just going to get um, into that in one second. I just wanted to very quickly say thanks to Sam Fragoso, Sam Fragoso of Talk Easy, a big podcast in an interview podcast in a, in America and, and he's a friend of the show and he's joined on Patreon. So thanks very much to, to Sam for that. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Really lovely to see your name pop up. And uh, Sam has a Patreon for the talk easy now as well. And well worth checking out some really lovely merch, particularly. I'm not sure if he ships to the UK. I have to ask him because I really want yeah. those mugs. I want one of those mugs. That's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you if you want access to our any of our bonus content, including our monthly newsletter, then uh, go over to our Patreon slash Cinematologist account. Very reasonable prices there. So let's get into it. This is me talking to Dr. Hannah Pavek. And I started out by asking her about her interest in cinema and particularly the focus of sound and silence in her PhD. I was more into music when I was younger, um, but that's actually kind of how I got into independent film and got exposed to American independent cinema specifically. I was really obsessed with this singer-songwriter, Elliot Smith, and I remember just looking at every single film that um, his music 
was soundtracking. So um, Gus Van Sant, uh, Thumb Sucker, that really is what introduced me to the, a whole other realm of different kind of film practice. So sound um, was a big thing right from the start then, obviously. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I ended up getting into film studies at university uh, through my course. I did cultural studies, um, which is a more interdisciplinary course. And it, you know, focused on cultural theory, art, film, literature, and that's when I kind of brought brought together my my interest in sound and music into the the film studies realm. Yeah, I took like a really amazing course called uh, "The Silent Figure in Literature and Film." Right, um, which well, that figures. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which kind of set up um, the the rest of my uh, grad school research. It got me really interested in the kind of gaps and silences in between what is said. Um, And that's both in kind of a radio context. Um, I remember writing about This American Life and also in film. So I I got into film studies a little bit later through kind of that sound path. In terms of that kind of interest in the relationship between sound and film, but also the way that sound shapes our everyday experience. It's very kind of obvious to kind of say, oh, I'm going to go look at a musical genre. I'm going to, I'm going to study, say, for example, the voice, as we've done on, mm-hmm. on the podcast. But the idea of silence, this in-between thing, or this silence as sound is a really, not an abstract idea, but it's something that is almost kind of counterintuitive. So what were the sort of basic elements or the beginning elements of that, that that you found really sort of fascinating or were the things that that drove you into thinking, yeah, this is a, this is a sort of PhD worth looking at. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I totally agree that it, it is abstract in a sense and there is something, uh, ironic about going, going searching for, for absences (laughs) in a way. Um, and, the more that I was thinking about silence and watching films that had these quiet moments, the more I realized, like, no, this isn't, this isn't an absence. This isn't a gap. Like yeah. this, as you know, this uh, yeah, yeah. sound design and sonic composition is so densely constructed. There's something else going on here. We're still listening. We're still tuning in. So I became, I would say first I did my master's uh, dissertation on a couple of kind of sound art pieces um, that were specifically interrogating silence and in a, in a radio context. And it was through that research that I um, thought I really needed to explore how it's mediated in film. There was something like very kind of urgent for me about thinking about how silence and listening um, interacted in a film context and interacted in the cinema. I remember going to see Joanna Hogg's exhibition during right. that time of writing my thesis. Sure. Um, and yeah, the, that sound design was just so powerful, especially watching it in, in the cinema context. And I 
was really interested in how those kind of like penetrating sounds in an otherwise quite like limited dialogue setting, Mm. um, what they were doing in terms of the narrative and the aesthetics of the film. And I think it's, it's interesting sort of moving into the placing that kind of analysis into the, the context of a kind of the global art house tradition or European, well, what, what used to be called the kind of international style, the sort of post-war film festivals, art house context. I suppose that that's the space in which that idea of the, the, the actual active use of silence, again, it's the wrong word really, because it's not silence. But, and, and I think that the sort of basis of what you argue really is that silence has shape and it has sounds within it. And that there's a, there's a resonance going on between what we're hearing and our embodiedness and that kind of stuff. So we'll get, we'll, we'll come on to that. But I mean, the, the, the article that you've written is, is about Valeska Griesbach's work and particularly Western obviously is what we're talking about, but you know, in a broader sense, what do you think that these films are trying to do with the silence? I mean, I know obviously every, every film will be different, but is there a kind of combination of aesthetics and politics that that is an aspect of of the way that this 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 element of silence is being used? Yeah, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Um, I would I kind of use the category global art cinema to refer to to refer to those art house works um, specifically in light of uh, Rosalind Galt, who is also a King's uh, prof and uh, Carl Schoonover, uh, they talk about the relationship between aesthetics and geopolitics as being absolutely central to that kind of, as you said, post-war lineage of art cinema. Um, and for me, as I was tracking, first I was tracking silence as a as an aesthetic category, as an aesthetic trend that you could see increasingly in you know, post-2000 contemporary global art cinema. So if before silence in the immediate post-war era was often coded as about the, in an existential sense. So Mm, um, like being and non-being and absence. And like, if you think of Bergman (laughs) persona, and I was trying to think through the different aesthetic and, and politics, political register that um, it had in the contemporary context. Um, for me, a lot of the, the films that I was looking at, I kept coming up against the way that they were using silence in ways that exposed the kind of gendered and also racial and colonial dynamics of displacement, of intrusion, of dispossession. Um, so that's where I was finding the the political register there. Um, But in terms of aesthetics, I could say that often silence in these types of films is considered under the umbrella of slow cinema and the slow style. Yeah, so I was trying to think about it on its own. Yeah, and it's also, it seems to me as well, I mean, again, I haven't read your whole PhD, I've just read this article, but it seems that you're sort of uh, as well part of that approach to to critique that is trying to un- undo those binaries the, the binary logic of um the presence and absence as you're talking about so sound is there and sound is 
uh, agential and and uh, silence is kind of like the non-place. And that, uh, like, if you, again, if you place that politically, you could sort of say the idea of having a voice versus not having a voice. And I think a lot of those those elements are, whether it's intentional or whether it just comes through other factors in terms of the the whole kind of language of cinema and their connection to to the images that we see. I think you can see that in a lot of these examples that we're talking about. And I think it's it's really interesting to put this in the context of the of the Berlin School, which is obviously Griesbach is kind of named as a part of that. And you know, the Berlin School is one of these things where it's it's been named by a critic, you know, none of the filmmakers really sort of say, oh yeah, here's our school and we all kind of belong to it and we're all going to make films in the same way. People like, you know, Christian Petzold and Angela Shanalek. But obviously you, you cover the, the global art cinema in your PhD, but you focus in this article that we're talking about on Valeska Griesbach. So what is it about her work that you, you know, apart from the sound it, it itself, you know, was there, was there something about her work that really sort of drew you to, to writing about? I would say I first was introduced to it in relation to Meek's Cutoff, the right. Kelly Reichardt film. So I was thinking it, thinking already about genre and feminist approaches to the Western genre. So that's how I, I, I got into it. Um, but what I absolutely love about her work also is the kind of attention to the bodies of the non-professional actors and their kind right. of communicative physicality, um, the observational style. And I also um, am a really big fan of her previous film, Longing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance. Yeah, well, I watched that the other day um, for the first time. Actually, to buy it on DVD because you can't stream it, but it's, yeah, really, really amazing film. Yeah, yeah, she just has so many interesting kind of aesthetic um, elements to that. The the end is like, I could talk about the end for a while. Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I, I, she was kind of my entry point as well to thinking about the Berlin school within, within global art cinema as a specific, yeah, a movement that maybe they don't, the filmmakers don't consider <laughs> to be a, a unified movement, but that has definitely emerged in in kind of the critical discourse, as you said, as one. Yeah, I mean the the, the piece by I don't know if you've read it. The piece by Marco Abel in Cineast sort of talks about it as kind of like a counter cinema to German commercial productions that have done well, say at, at um, in award ceremonies. So things like Lives of Others, which have mm-hmm. a kind of larger narrative that relate back to Germany's past and the Berlin school are much more interested in more contemporary personal stories using you know these realist aesthetics that you've talked about and non-professional actors and uh smaller stories that they don't dismiss the Germany's past but then they don't have this grand sweep of oh this is what happened and this is how it was solved and all all of that kind of stuff so, yeah, I mean, it, and it reminds me a little bit of when we did a couple of ep- episodes back talking about Romanian cinema. There's a very sort of parallel to the sort of post-89 political context um, of, of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and everything. But these films are not political in terms of having an agenda, are they? But they're, and they're not agitational, as Abel, Abel puts it. So where does the politics lie, would you say, in these, in these mm. kinds of movies? 
A lot of it is in depicting uh, the realities of living under neoliberalism and that kind of specific early 2000s moment, um, I would say, for the early Berlin School works. And I would say that there is definitely a subtler form of politics in um, Griesbach's work, and that comes a lot from the kind of critical exploration of masculinity that she does both in Longing and Western, and also in relation to Western, the kind of settler colonial dynamics of that genre as well. What's really interesting to me is also post-Western, post this 2017 film, the production company Complizen Film that produced it um, has been working on some films. I don't know if you've seen Giraffe or The Fever. No, um, I have not seen it, either of those. I'll put those on the list. Both 2019 films from Complizen Film. So coming out of the Berlin School, but going abroad as well and really taking up these questions of colonialism, geopolitics. Uh, so I think it's interesting if if we were to trace a kind of shift in the political implications of the Berlin School style from this more Germany-focused um, question of neoliberalism towards this larger global um, outlook. Um, that's how I'm thinking about it, at least. I mean, I think you're so right in, in sort of talking about longing as having kind of parallels, obviously as parallels with, with Western, but particularly in terms of the, the kind of masculinity element and that idea of the fraternal relationships and how they structure what masculinity is. But I think in, in terms of sort of moving on to talking about your, your piece, I think it's really interesting in, in as a starting point to to sort of consider how it is... a um, it's called Western, and it is a you know, in the broadest sense, it is a revisionist Western or a, a Western removed from its traditional kind of generic location, for example, and time. But also, it's working kind of allegorically to to sort of talk about this idea of manifest destiny and 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 the idea of the lone character who is the the antihero or the taciturn hero and what he represents is all kind of in there so th- th- this is where this is where the the sort of allegorical elements of the film become really really interesting but maybe you could just give us a very quick pressy for people who haven't seen the film about broadly what happens or what what it's about sure um so the film kind of tracks uh these german construction workers specifically focused on a uh, meinhard um who camp out in Bul- bulgaria and where they're constructing hydroelectric dam. And the film really traces the relationship between and among the German construction workers and the Bulgarian locals. And we have a similar focus on on the taciturn hero of Meinhard and how he relates to both the groups of men um, that are the the focus of Griesbach's kind of exploration of the genre. And also, I think hopefully we can talk about it later, also the women. Um, And there's some really interesting dynamics going on with 
the Meinhard and Vincent and the locals' relationships with women. Early on, there's some really interesting and beautiful moments that that both allude to the Western genre, but but set up this kind of, it's almost like, you know, if, if there's one Western, I was trying to think of which Western really is this sort of taking elements from. And in terms of the relationship between the two groups, it's almost a fistful of dollars where mm-hmm. the guy, there's a guy in the middle playing each side off against each other, but it's not, it doesn't really work in that way. But I, you know, hopefully you, you'll get what I mean. But right at the beginning, there's this lovely scene where, they come up against these what seemingly look like wild horses in the middle of the the countryside. And he uses, Meinhardt uses the the horse. He just sort of gets on top of it and it takes him to the, the village where the, the Bulgarian v- village. And this is where he has his first encounter with the, with the locals. And was that one of the things that, that, that sort of struck you in terms of, Oh, th- this is a film that's really sort of mining some of these characteristics of the, of the Western genre. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember reading also that Griesbach was very inspired by um, the uh, very classical Western um, mid-century um, when, like when they were shown on TV in Germany. And I think it's interesting that it's specifically those more classical forms of the genre or instances of the genre that, that get cited here rather than the the later like we get like a specific image of the western that feels almost very dated in in a sense yeah and and when when he goes into the 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 village i mean he's he's taciturn as you say he doesn't say an awful lot but then there is this kind of requirement for him to converse or communicate with the with the locals and a lot of the film is him trying to get over the language barrier. And he does this in very interesting ways. And I particularly when he's in the car. So there's this moment where his his own group, who who, to be fair, he's quite an outsider. He's probably, you know, he, they don't really trust him because he doesn't say a lot. He doesn't kind of engage in the male banter with the group in the same way. And as you say, the, the head of the German group is it is Vincent, isn't it? Who um definitely doesn't trust him and there's this almost antagonism from the start but he gets so he gets left out in the middle of nowhere as a kind of a prank and ends up getting picked up by the bulgarians and 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 he you can see in the car he's his silence is really telling and the camera is sort of in portrait of him being really worried about where he's being taken all this kind of thing and he uses he picks out odd words here and there just to try and get some meaning and ingratiate himself present himself as not as a threat to these guys yeah and I think it's really interesting that of those words he he picks up solda um and so he creates this um link to a very particular form of heroic masculinity as a I imagine a protective (laughs) shield um in relation to these other locals um, yeah, so what's really interesting about the film is that we'll see these miscommunications across linguistic differences in the subtitles. So there's a lot going on. Um, the characters don't might not be able to understand one another, but then the spectator um, were in the position of understanding where those gaps are in their understanding and also where they still are able to understand one another as well. So 
um, I found the the way that subtitles were used in this way was fascinating. Yeah, it gives us a, a even more omniscient position than we probably already have as as viewers. Being able to understand to a sort of deeper level where the, where their communication gaps are, but also having a sort of a deeper sense of where the dangers might might be, you know what I mean, and 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 how things are getting missed and how things are getting understood and slightly misunderstood. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the kind of main trajectories of of the film is him increasingly moving from um, a position where some of his communication with the locals is very transactional. And often that kind of transactionality um, is in context with some of the female locals um, and with women. So I'm thinking specifically, if you remember, the there's a scene where he goes to get cigarettes in the little cafe and the woman refuses to, to give him cigarettes um, after he kind of rudely just kind of assumes that he'll get them um, in titled manner. We see it move from that kind of transactional interaction increasingly towards one where he kind of recognizes his position in relation to the Bulgarian locals. I, I don't think it's absolved. I think the film is still no. interested in looking at those uneven power dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that's that's one of the the kind of main through lines of the of the film. Yeah, because in the in the trajectory of the narrative, there's this there are sort of territorial kind of inklings about where battle lines historically are kind of manifesting themselves in in the contemporary. So. You know, they have this bit where they realize that the water, they can't get the, the water only at certain times. So the, the water is on this timer or on this switch where it goes to one part of the village and then it goes to the other part of the village. And then there's this whole story about how the Germans decide that they want the water all the time, you know. And their reasoning is, you know, part of the reasoning is, oh, well, we're building, we're trying to educate, civilize, build up this this area so we can kind of do do what we want. But then also, as you say, it manifests itself in terms of, the the treatment and relationship with the women so vincent there's this scene at, at the beginning where he he kind of torments one of the local women but then later on meinhardt develops a relationship with this woman and it, it starts to play off ab- about what vincent as this sort of colonial german figure feels that he's in, entitled to or does meinhardt as well like uh, yeah yeah of course yeah 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 yeah, yeah so I, I thought that was interesting in one in one sense setting Vincent and Meinhardt up against one another as foils like in a classical western in a duel like at the very beginning um and but then also showing even though they take these different approaches to relating with the locals it's still uh, yeah. there's yeah there's still these dynamics of this extraction like of the of the water resources but also how those dynamics relate to their, his treatment of of women and also animals so the there's like as you mentioned at the beginning of our talk the the white horse um that he finds and goes and rides off <laughs> he just takes it it's like i'm just gonna go ride it it's like there's no sort of question about that and then when it goes to the village he he still thinks it's his when he they come up against these kids who actually has more um propriety over the horses let's say yeah, exactly. 
yeah, and there's this, like, to, just to, to go back a little bit to the, the sound, and not to perhaps a spoiler, <laughs> um, but with the white horse, um, when there's this moment in, midway through the film where the, the white horse is, like, in a moment of suffering. Yeah. Um, and everything goes quiet, and we just hear hear this like pain mm. um, coming from the the animal, and that is like one of the moments in which I think that silence is here, turning us to um, how this animal has been um, fought over as a kind of property, as contested property. And this points to as well the sort of theoretical approach you take in the in the article drawing upon Jean-Luc Nancy and his his uh, processes of listening, let, let's say, when he talks about this sort of mechanism for sensuous material listening and this idea of the body as a resonance chamber. I mean, m- m- maybe you could talk a little bit about Nancy and, and his work and his sort of approach to the idea of, of listening and then how maybe that kind of translates to the idea of listening when we're watching a film. So... Jean-Luc Nancy's philosophy of listening really turns on this distinction between hearing and listening. So he thinks of hearing as um, what you're doing when you're searching for the meaning or the message in a sound. So that's when you're like specifically thinking about the, the, the meaning of the words spoken, um, whereas listening is a more all-encompassing um, and closer attentiveness um, where you think about, yes, the meaning, but also, as you said, the sensuous materiality um, and the ways that sound is always penetrating our bodies in a way and um, mixing with the internal sounds that our bodies are making. So it, it's, an, it's a very embodied but also way of thinking about relationality um, and how we're relating to the world and ourselves um, and for Nancy listening is like the, the the model for thinking through that way of relating to others ourselves and the world around us um, that is different from something that is more agential or um, outward focused this one is is thinking about how um, there's always a gap and a space between how we relate to to ourselves. That it's not just a like a unified identity. In terms of that that idea, then it's it's almost as suggesting that the way that we listen is actually within a, a kind of sphere of textured layers. And you 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 sort of mentioned this idea that we never are in total silence and there's been these experiments set up where we where these rooms have been invented that you could go into them and they're total silence and people just kind of lose their minds after like half an hour in in them so it's this sense that our brain actually creates sound for us to to hear even when we think that there is no sound and the way that films play on that requires an understanding of our own our own sense of sonorous experience in relationship to the the film that we're watching slash listening to. So do you think that that the the filmmakers then are trying to create an experience in which the the sound is having kind of like or or is is pushing us to have certain kinds of emotional responses 
is it that kind of causal or is this just a sort of sense in which you think that the the sound design has layers of quiet that fit on top of the the narratives and the the moments that are happening within within the film if that does that make sense at all that felt a bit yeah, rambly. <laughs> I th- yeah I think um I think it's more the latter um I don't think it's so um intentional in the sense that it, it's like a purely affect driven um tool like I don't want to in- instrumentalize silence I think that um the sound design is working in concert with every single element of visual style and narrative. And by by looking at these or listening closely to these moments, we can kind of uh, think differently or think anew uh, what the film is um, is trying to tell us. <laughs> and w- one question that I had, and I think this is, I mean, this is always a tricky one for me when I'm thinking about, because I've, I've recently been doing a lot of work um, on sound and the relationship between sound and image and in terms of how we actually listen. So there's lots of stuff that you can talk about in terms of the connection between, you know, when you put a certain sound on an image, it will have a different effect if you put a different sound on that same image. But when when you're watching these films or when you're watching this film particularly, are you thinking about the the environment of your listening practice? So say for example, it would seem to me that the effect of the film would be very different in an auditorium than it would be when you are watching it on your laptop with earphones in, where you could get a much more clear sense of internally what effect the sound might be having. Whereas the in an auditorium, it's the same sound, but the design of the, the apparatus that you're listening to it on would create a different experience. Yeah, I know. I definitely think it has an impact. Um I think when when I'm in the auditorium, I'm thinking specifically of how, like, if the dialogue gets minimized or muted, then what sounds are coming to attention instead, um, and those can also be the sounds of my like, like fellow uh, moviegoers around me. Um, there is not, yeah, if there's no pure state where you're only going to be listening to the sound constructed by the film it's always in in a listening environment that is not uh, that has um, external and internal sounds so um, in in that sense I, I I don't see like a hard and fast distinction between kind of listening in an auditorium and listening when you're at home and there's you know um someone cooking in the background <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Um, there's a, still a mixing of, of listening environments. Yeah. No, it's that, that, that's really, that's really interesting. One of the things that I was really interested in was this quote in the article, this phrase that you use called, called de- destabilizing mastery. And the, and that relates to the kind of gendering of silence. And it's really interesting in regards to how silence, when it's a male character, is and especially in the context of the of the western genre is this sort of sense of power or um it kind of it kind of imbues a sense of control or a, a, a sense of sort of withholding something that is deep and meaningful <laughs> and it's often then placed in relationship to when acts of 
violence or speech are are made by the character that have that are given a, a greater sense of significance. Yet when a a female character, and again, you could probably extrapolate this out to you know wider context of of, of gender hierarchies. You know, idea when when a, a female character is silent, it is it has completely different connotations with regards to sort of gender hierarchies. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. That's why I I never thought I was going to be working on the Western genre at all in my thesis. <laughs> um, this was like, it, it happened at the end. It was like a fortuitous turn, I would say. But yeah, why I find it so interesting is because a lot of the, the feminist film theory on silence and thinking on silence has been, as you said, about how silence um, is uh, associated with um, a lack of authority over the narrative, a lack of agency. Um, it's a way of tying the the female character in these 1930s, 1940s films to the body and to like, so if we think of the, as a kind of analog of um, Laura Mulvey's uh, piece on the male gaze. Um, this is the oral analog of it. Um, but then we see at the very same time, like in the classical Hollywood genre with Hollywood, um, we see how silence is actually the complete opposite and it's a marker of power and mastery at when it's associated with these male characters. Um, so for me, it was just a really interesting exercise to think about how silence is never just an, uh, an oppression or a mark of empowerment, but how it's always moving in relation to different power dynamics. And I really kind of tried to unpack that. Um, but yeah, that's why this film was so interesting. Because um, you think it's not coded as, as powerful in the same way that traditional Westerns are when it comes to the male characters. I think what I, I what this film is doing is that there's like two types of silence, if I could say that. So there is the the silence of withholding, as you mentioned, of like the self control of not speaking. Um, that is the kind of sovereign silence that we usually think of with a taciturn hero. But then this film is using. Uh, moments of quiet and amplified kind of industrial noises, amplified environmental sounds um, that make that mastery of the sovereign silence um, untenable. Um, so I think it's using silence in these two ways um, to think through the the kind of gendered, but also settler colonial implications of this character of the taciturn hero. Great. Well, Hannah, it's, it's been great to speak to you again. Thanks so much for taking the, the so much time out to talk about your article and good luck. I hope it wins the uh, best article of the year for the award you're up for. It's been really great to talk to you. Um, yeah, I, I love hearing your uh, work about sound always. So... Hey, 
Deswegen bauen wir ja ein Wasserkraftwerk. Der Weg jetzt immer einen Ansprechen, Mädel ansprechen. Sagen wir mal. Ja, genau, genau, genau. Hallo. <lacht> So thanks so much, Hannah, and uh, congratulations on the new job and everything, and things seem to be going well over in, in Canada. Neil, what did you make of that chat? Is there anything you want to pull out and talk about? Lots, yeah. I mean, first, like, just it sounded great. I thought the, the sound quality was really good. It's a lovely edit, done a great job, and the conversation itself was, was fab. Yeah, I mean, firstly, a quick note of the Elliot Smith, you know, if it's... Uh, if Elliot Smith is mentioned, it has to be noted, I think. It's certainly one of my favourites. And it was really lovely to hear that he was kind of the gateway into American indie cinema. And then and then it kind of expanded from there. And it's always nice hearing people's gateways and, and sort of those things, you know, particularly when it's music for me, as you know. So that was what what the conversation made me think about was what wasn't said <laughs> in a nice way. You know, there was so much there. And both of you sort of said a lot of things which made me then think about what what else what else the is is part of this conversation you know and this idea of you know cinematic silence was a big part of that in terms of certainly how we conceive of silence in cinema and I know we're going to talk about this in terms of how you define things in terms of uh genres and and, and whether genres or or anything are kind of useful signifiers but i thought this idea of a cinematic silence because is a really important one and, and certainly part of a, a conversation about what the cinematic is now you know are we moving into a time when the cinematic is 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 a signifier itself not necessarily a, a form but but is a is something that is put on you know we talk about cinematic tv we you know so so how to, you know, what happens when we say that the silence in cinema is, particularly when it's kind of authored in the way that it is in, in Western, is a cinematic silence and what does that... And then that kind of made me think, you know what, there is there is a history of the art, um, sort of global art cinema as it's defined here, where this kind of work has been done that has then been innovative and been really kind of influential in mainstream cinema so people thinking you know sort of so Hannah mentioned Persona by Bergman I'm thinking also of people like Tarkovsky and things like that and how how those experiments with aesthetics have have impacted sort of cinema wide I thought that was really interesting to to have a really in-depth think about cinematic silence and what it is um it's really really enjoyable that idea of silence again in troubling that very name the naming of it as silence because it's almost to me I was thinking about it afterwards in many ways, it's the absence of voice as much as anything else. You know, and we did that, that that whole episode on the cinematic voice. As sort of Shion talks about that idea of the of of the voice defining every every time a voice utters, it defines the entirety of what is going on sonically. <laughs> for for whatever reason, because the human beings are are drawn towards that language communication. So then you take the if the voice is out there, then you're left with what is the cinema doing? So if you're talking, what is, the, what is a specific film doing? So if a film then doesn't use, say, music or let's say overt effects, it's simply letting the, the sound of, of nothingness, of, of just 
what is what is still there but is not intentionally being recorded for its sound for for sound's sake it seems but i think what's really interesting and why this is sort of so kind of relevant at the moment and and again you see this a lot i think in, as a reaction to the pandemic that, that and a lot of the spoken web podcast has been talking about this of so this idea of just listening sort of more intently or more curiously or more with a sense of purpose and just listening to the everyday and listening to the things that are that are going on and i think that that's what western does here it 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 gives you sort of permission or directs you towards doing that in a way that the other films just have voices and effects and music and it's shaping you towards a specific kind of you know semiotic understanding of what the film is doing yeah absolutely and the kind of conceit in the film in terms of there's a group of german builders who are kind of in bulgaria working and they have these long conversations both the groups of the germans and the bulgarians but certainly uh meinhardt in the in the central role has these conversations where no one understands each other and that's something that you've seen played for comic effect in other films you know as a scene and as a kind of comic device but but here it is absolutely central to the yeah the kind of the aesthetic intention of the film and what it made me think when I was rewatching it, it was sort of what I was alluding to earlier in terms of understanding what's going on in terms of how you feel about a film is what I realised is that we are being drawn to the fact that we are listening to people talk who cannot understand each other. And I felt like it wouldn't matter if they could speak the same language because it's about it's about not being able to understand each other. And that doesn't come down to necessarily understanding the words that someone says. It's understanding the person and the context. And I think it's so beautifully done in Western where if they had common English and they could understand asking for a cigarette or, you know, asking about some gravel, they still wouldn't understand each other. It's got, you know, like there's so many layers of political and social and historical context at play between these two groups of people. And obviously the gender is a, is a big part of that, that, the words are irrelevant in terms of what they what they would be saying to each other in terms of what that film is 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 getting at. And I love the fact that it was set on the Greek the Greece border as well. You know, there was a whole kind of geopolitics which is present in the film, which is brilliantly explicit and implicit at the same time. Which just your understanding of where the Germans have come from to Bulgaria and and Bulgaria's place in you know, at that time, movement of people in Europe is absolutely thrilling. Um, and even if they could say we're on the Greece border and have it understood in terms of a very basic language, would the Germans understand what that means to live in Bulgaria on the Greece border? Would the Bulgarians understand what it means to be German in the time of the refugees' mass movement? It's just, it was absolutely, it's absolutely brilliant. And what the film does and what Hannah's essay does, is it, 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 it draws you into the, the subtitles and what the subtitles are doing. And you quickly realise that you could read the subtitles and it doesn't matter because the people on the screen can't understand what we're what saying. So you kind of move past the that and you're, you're kind of much more interested in, in what's, in the spaces between what's being said and even what you're reading. It's really, really fab. And the other really fascinating element to me is that that sort of questioning of the idea of silence in the masculine subject. And not only that, and I think, again, this, this sort of occurred to me later on, in terms of the way that fraternal dynamics among men, particularly in, in 
you know, certain class uh, statuses, let's say. So here you've got, you know, basically these are German working class guys. And I think you and I, you know, although we're, we're definitely not working class now, I, you know, I don't think we could claim that anymore, but we have working class roots and we have experience within fraternal working class relationships. And it just always brings me back to that idea that the the interrelationships between between men are so much about what isn't said and what is said is about is done for effect and done for bravura and done for status and intimidation sometimes and competition and all of these all these kinds of things and there you know the the way that the group of germans are a specific kind of group because they are they are enclosed and they're outside of their their own sort of fam- familial relationships okay so when they're all together that becomes almost hyper realized you know what i mean or amplified in that in that close knit group and then that close knit group is going into a, a a sort of village situation where you know the relationships with women and the relationships with other generations kind of temper down that that sort of sense of masculinity in a way so it's interesting when that clash occurs and that is a, a very specific kind of critique or lens that's being put on on how men relate to each other in that sense. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that I saw the film Giraffe yesterday, which is on Mubi and is directed by Anna-Sophie Hartman. And this is um, one of the films that, that Hannah named as the sort of post-Berlin school realist representation. And it kind of set again in terms of interrogating this idea of the movement of... Uh, nationalities across borders so it's set between the digging of the tunnel between Denmark and um, and Germany but what I thought was was really interesting is that it's a kind of docufiction and it and it, it treats the it treats the laborers who are Polish in this case who are digging this tunnel between Germany and uh, and Germany and Denmark so you get an even more sort of layering of of European politics here and, and migration and, and what have you but what it does in that film is it actually interviews the workers in a sort of documentary talking heads kind of style even though it's still fictionalized and it's really interesting how those guys are just talking about look we've moved here to to earn a living and we've left our families at home and we've had to make this sacrifice and it's a completely different kind of rendering of masculinity just simply in in the form which I found was really interesting and sort of just made me think about that idea of of the way that we think about identity and how it's constructed is so beholden to these ge- generic expectations that, that that we have in, say, something like the Western genre. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It, com- it comes up at the start of the start of Western, doesn't it, where yeah. they're in the hostel before they kind of travel and the guy says, you know, you could work in Germany. Yeah. And it's like, well could they you know or could they get that you know like it, it so it kind of sets them off onto the onto the the road really as this kind of gang and then that recalls the going out on the frontier you know the uh, in the western and also reminded me of something like the wild bunch you know where mm. and what you were saying there in terms of this fraternal group who are brought together by circumstance and economics <laughs> you know it, you know like and what what happens to that group and how how they yeah, they they carry with them all all of that context of their homeland and the fact that they have to. This is their life that they you know they 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 can't work in Germany. If they could, they probably would. And there's that great scene where Vincent's on the phone home, you know, and and Meinhardt sort of listening in, 
and he's he's just he just hates it you know he hates being there but but there's a kind of there's a necessity to it there's a kind of economic necessity and that economic necessity kind of brings out a really different type of masculinity because it's a it's an inherently inferior feeling vulnerable you know feeling out of place out of time that they don't belong where they they feel most at home and then they're kind of out here and what that does to them in terms of how they approach living in that space and then how the local men feel invaded and what that does it's just it's it's absolutely absolutely brilliant and very much part of the western tradition what i love about the film as well is it opens with this great almost like this weird vista you know of a kind of local park and mine sort of strides in it's it's really laying out its generic cards but then because of the fascinating sort of interrelationships with everyone it quickly moves you out of that it plays its western hands at really interesting points so you always feel like you're in that context but it's never laid on in terms of like what you're expecting to see it's really smart yeah brilliant so we are going to continue the conversation over on the bonus episodes so if you are a patreon subscriber you can hear us talking a little bit more i think we're going to talk a little bit more about westerns generally that are set outside of the western context and and just have a chat about some of our faves in that regard so yeah thanks so much for uh listening you can contact us on the usual channels on our um, email cinematologist at gmail.com on twitter of course neil great to speak to you really looking forward to the wilderness chat next time thank you yeah me too uh well done on this episode uh fantastic job with the interview and thanks to hannah for coming on and yeah thanks to you guys thanks for your continued support and listening this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening